what does it mean not to say, here's the good people who should be protected at all costs and here's the bad people who should be gotten rid of so much as like, how do you stop something going on that's wrong? How do you respect the autonomy of others? Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we do our very best to use the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on right now. I am your host, Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. Adrian, who are we talking to this week in America? This week, we're talking to the amazing Danny M. Lavery. You may know from his books, Texts from Jane Eyre, The Merry Spinster, and Something That May Shock and Discredit You, which just came out earlier this year. You may also know him from editing The Toast, RIP. Iconic. Absolutely. And as the host of Slate, The Prudence Advice Column, and their podcast. We talked to Danny about advice giving, about queerness, about family, mm. and about secrets. I'm not going to lie. This was a hard conversation, and it was an emotional conversation. I was and am incredibly grateful to Danny yeah. for sharing everything he did with us and for his moral courage in confronting the story that he tells us. So I just want to start by warning our listeners that we do get into some discussion of pedophilia in this episode. And if that's something that negatively impacts you, please take good care of yourself or don't listen. Absolutely. But just to recap for folks who might not be super familiar with Danny's work or with the controversy he's been dealing with for the last couple months, basically in November of 2019, Danny learned that someone at his father's church who had unsupervised access to children confessed to compulsive sexual feelings towards children. And then Danny was placed in a position that I don't think anyone would ever want to be in, which is figuring out how to report this, what kind of accountability was necessary, and Danny's personal responsibility. I'm being really circumspect in the way that I'm describing this because I supremely do not feel it's my story to tell and because Danny tells it so powerfully in our interview with him. Absolutely. But um, there's a whole lot more on the internet about this if you yeah. do want to do any research on your own. And we should say it may well have shifted by the time you listen to this. There might be even more out That's there. Also uh, true. So if that is important to you, if you want to know more, Danny has been and really admirably forthcoming with wrestling with this ethical quandary in public. And we're just incredibly grateful that he opened up the way he did and talked us through this incredibly wrenching topic. Yes, exactly. So thank you to Danny, our friend and conversational partner. Thank, thank you to all of you Big for listening you. to this podcast. We're really psyched to have you join us week after week. And without further ado... Please enjoy Adrian and my interview with the wonderful Danny M. Lavery. Danny, coming at us from Brooklyn, New York. How are you doing? I'm doing, you know, today has been today. I don't have a good answer for this question. Nobody does. I'm around. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. You're here. We're all looking at screens. That's real. Mm, real. What are you doing today? What have I been doing today? Um, earlier, I took a walk, which was very exciting. 
and before that, God, it's all just a haze, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Soup, yeah. That's incredible. It's just gone. I, I couldn't tell you. I think I, um, I think I worked a shift this morning. Yes, I was on shift this morning for my mutual aid. I was doing dispatch, so I was doing that. But then between that and the walk, might as well have been abducted by aliens. <laughs> what does that mean for listeners who may not be as familiar with modes of mutual aid? So what the dispatch people do is you'll sign up for different shifts throughout the day and then you monitor both the phone number as well as the email account for any new requests that are coming in. You start a sort of ticket for it and then put it out to the various teams of volunteers in different neighborhoods, seeing if there's anybody who's available, checking in with people who are out fulfilling other requests, just generally making sure that there's somebody around to connect somebody who needs something with somebody who has something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Has there been a market shift in that? I guess I'm getting really interested in the way we are all sort of making ourselves at home in this kind of abnormal situation. Mm-hmm. Are you finding a lot of new calls? Does it still throw a lot of new stuff at you or do you now have abnormal down? Is it the same kind of weird every time? Well, it's pretty new for me. I only joined in, in April, so I'm still kind of picking up on what all the work is. But I will say that, especially in Brooklyn, as things have gone on, we've gotten a ton more requests. Right. A lot of people who were kind of like holding steady through the first two months as things continue to fall apart, there was more need. And now that summer's here, we're actually getting a lot of people wondering if we can help them find air conditioning units. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because like normally in the summer, the city, I guess, runs cooling centers on Mm. occasion and they no longer Mm -hmm. do that. So there's a lot of people who are really in need of air conditioning and it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Man, I have lived a New York summer without an air conditioner and that was not casual. Like it's easy to think of an air conditioner as just like a sort of luxury or convenience, but when it's 95 degrees in a hundred square foot room and you're someone maybe dealing with health risks, like that's not an incidental need at all. Yeah. I must admit, I don't even remember what the lockdown situation is like in New York. Are any of the places where you could get publicly available air conditioning, are any of them open? Like malls, probably not. Public libraries, probably not. As far as I'm aware, the libraries are still closed. Yeah. I don't know of any malls in this part of Brooklyn. I know that last week was supposed to be the beginning of, I think, like phase two. But that really just involved like curbside pickup for certain retail stores. Some restaurants seem to be having a couple of patio chairs that you can sit in now. Mm. I'm not doing that, but some of them appear to be. Right. But no, there's no like libraries, movie theaters, malls. That's not an option and neither are the usual city run cooling centers. So that's mm-hmm. I think just going to be a huge need for the rest of the summer. I do predict that phase two, by the way, is going to be the word of the year. It's like infrastructure week, except for phases, you know, it's like, we're always in phase two. I think in San Francisco, we're now in phase two B and I'm like, wait, there were sub phases. I feel like this was not adequately explained at the beginning. It seems to be the thing right after everything's just shut the fuck down. And instead it's not normal, but it's supposed to feel normal, right? I feel like phase two is where we're at and we're going to be at for the foreseeable future. Right. I can't imagine it's going to last especially long just because phase two mostly started because it was just like, well, we're tired of this. Yeah. Not that we have any better strategy. So it's just like, well, it's still there. We didn't like come up with a vaccine and then forget about it. So the danger is just as real as it was back in March. Yeah. Might as well go to Target. Yeah. (laughs) 
phase two makes me nervous. Well, right, because it's this measure that, as Danny was saying, is just all about our own exhaustion yeah. and unwillingness to do certain things anymore and not about like, oh, we figured this stuff out. Like, oh, we know that this kind of spread is unlikely. Nope, it's not about that. It's about we all decided that we were going stir crazy inside and here goes nothing. Phase two is here goes nothing, the phase. I've been trying to formulate a difficult question that you wrote a book about and, you know, I've read the book. So in one sense, you've answered it already. But I was thinking about it when you were talking about mutual aid, too. Like you, Danny, are someone who has had to come up with your own kind of moral code. You know, like I'm thinking of you as someone who's battled with your own sense of faith and belonging within faith. And I guess I was wondering, inclusive of individuals, sort of what sources are you turning to for wisdom or guidance or role modeling as you build these mutual aid networks and uh, try to do that kind of good work? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so much of it feels like I have wanted to find out people who have been doing this work for a while and have a sense of what works, what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. There's often a lot of the mutual aids will have weekly calls where they just kind of update one another on how things are going. There was one this week that I actually was really bummed to have to miss. It was about like avoiding the charity model. And I was like, that seems really critical. And then I, I wasn't able to make it. So I'm like, now I'll never know. That's not true. I will definitely be able to find out. They always include notes. That's going to be great. Mm. But mostly I think it just has to do with the people that I meet through this mutual aid and the ones who have been doing it for more than six months, more than a couple of years, trying to get a sense of what works and what doesn't. But beyond that, I don't, I don't know that I spend a lot of time actively seeking out role models Mm -hmm. so much as just trying to get a sense of what feels both meaningful and doable to me and then getting to know the people who are already doing it. And, you know, like there was a jail support kind of hotline that you could get plugged into when these protests started really taking off. Like it's like we're on day, I think 20 now. Mm-hmm. And it was just really, really great. Like they provided some reading resources as well as just some basic primers. I would say it's not that there's been like one or two particular sources or lots and lots of reading so much as just a sense of, oh, these groups, they let you tag along. Mm-hmm. I'm deliberately asking a sort of one-on-one level question because I just want to hear you be smart. But like, what is problematic to you about the charity model? Or why are you interested in learning modes that work beyond those strictures? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just think charity sucks. <laughs> sure. Like, It's not cool. Nothing about that sort of approach to anything, I think, does anything other than like temporarily alleviate pressure that enables a particular setup to continue existing. Yeah. And and so like, you know, the history of various kinds of like charity and largesse often just have to do with cultivating a certain public reputation once you've reached a certain level of like wealth or fame, Mm -hmm. and then making sure there's going to be somebody tomorrow who's as in need of your charity as they were today. Whereas any kind of like direct action or mutual aid, at least on some level, the goal is like helping ourselves helping our neighbors not just um sorry i also am just very aware of like i'm just figuring a lot of this out and i'm just getting started so i don't have a lot of like great language for it totally yeah i mean like the kind of charity that i think i especially like grew up in the context of like white evangelical middle class churches which was very like Mm -hmm. how do we find ways to feel useful and look busy and remind ourselves of how sad other people's lives are. Just this absolute sense of uselessness, Mm -hmm. not wanting anything to do with that in my own life as an adult. Um, That I think is part of what motivated. Like I saw that and I was like, yes, great. Don't like charity. 
let's do something else. Do you think it's also about the question of deservingness, that charity is often premised on a performance of deservingness? In your book, I kind of feel like there's a lot of discomfort with that idea around religious of deservingness. And I must admit that I haven't thought about this concept of charity all that much, but it is about kind of a very spectacular form of like, well, this person not only needs this, but deserves this. Yeah, definitely. I think there's lots of history there of like trying to make decisions on behalf of other people or trying to say, you can have this once I've established that you're worthy of it. And there's just so much this sense of like the groups of people or the person with all the resources gets to decide when and how and under what conditions they offer this rather than like the people who have a need should be the ones determining like how they're accessing resources. Like people know their own needs better than anyone else. And so, yeah, very much like not trying to be in the business of deciding what people deserve resources and what people don't. Again, that just like once I saw that as an option, as an alternative to the sort of charity model, it just was like, of course, that makes more sense. Of course, that's better. Yeah, I approached your book and all your work to a degree as someone who also came from like a religious and culturally conservative upbringing. And, uh, you know, I also consider myself someone who's constantly reaching and often failing to find sort of non-Christianized ways of describing things. The reason I wanted you to unpack charity a little bit and how you saw it was because I've been thinking about it too. And I totally agree with the way you laid out why the power imbalance within like the typical charity structure is corrupt. But I have to admit, I've been kind of rethinking my own conception of tithing Mm. as a form of mutual aid or as a way to think about how to implement sustainable changes. Like, I feel like you've talked about tithing a little bit in Dear Prudence also. What is your relationship to that word? How do you feel about it? That sounds right. I think the letter that you're referring to in particular was like somebody wrote in and they were were Christian. Yes. And they were trying to figure something out. And so I felt like, let's use that in context for you. Right. You know, I think if you wanted to like look for within the history of Christianity and you wanted to go through, you know, Acts 2 through 5, you know, all those who believed were together, had all things in common, began selling their property and possessions, sharing them with all as any might have need. That I think is a model that is really useful, which is the idea of we're all pooling our resources together at the same time to the same degree, rather than every year there's a canned good drive. And it's something that requires full participation from everyone and not just like, oh, I'm feeling generous today. Right. But I also, as you were saying, like talking about thinking about dealing with a conservative Christian background, I also go really back and forth on days where I feel like, oh, I can access certain types of Christian language. And that feels sometimes useful, sometimes interesting, sometimes helpful. And then there's other days where I just feel like I wish I could wash it off. I'm just mad about it. I'm just hurt about it. I'm just allergic to it. And that shifts a lot. And I get that. I get where that comes from. I try to be relatively easygoing when I find myself pushing hard one way or the other, but I don't personally use language like tithing. I think there's lots of other Mm non-religious ways to think about holding things in common such that like if tithing is useful to you, that's wonderful. And if it's not, you do not need that word. Sure. I hear that. It's it's funny talking about charity in a week like this with the Bostock case having just sort of gone through the Supreme Court. It struck me that that's in some way one of the really interesting things about that case that unlike, I guess, Obergefell and Bollingsworth v. Perry, right, the Prop 8 case and the Doma case, 
those were often framed as like this kind of thing like oh we're giving you this thing now and you better use it in the right way or like you know you get to use it in such a way if you're you're this kind of particular kind of person or if you're in that kind of relationship and it was framed in these really kind of sentimental tropes that i think maybe charity puts it too strongly but it goes in that direction where in order to receive the thing you're given you have to prove yourself worthy of it something has to be true of you right and if it's not then really this gift misses the mark and with bostock i feel like that's not that's not the case it's just simply saying like let people do their shit and you don't get to interfere with that it struck me a lot that like how much damage in some way a very charitable kind of decision could actually do in terms of sort of forcing the mainstreaming of certain kind of relationships and making others all the more invisible yeah yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And I think the sort of difference between earlier similar rulings, which were sort of based on the idea of what you do in the privacy of your own home as your business right. versus the idea of there is a right to a public set of rights is very, very different. Yeah, I totally see that. Do we think that this kind of charity-based model is something that we could ever sort of leave behind as a society. It makes sense that you're saying that for yourself, you don't find it useful. But in some way, we're now talking sort of about the social dangers of this, right? About the way it really kind of frays the social fabric. If I get to determine when and to what extent I'm responsible for you. And I'm like, hey, aren't you so glad that I gave you my old canned beans or whatever, right? Whereas like the mutual aid model that you're describing is of course far more about like, hey, who needs what? What don't they need? Is that something that you would give people as advice or is that something that you actually think one can organize around and one could institutionalize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And again, like lots of people much wiser than me have put a lot of this down in writing, which is great because less of that work for me, but we get rid of the charity model. I think essentially by, we have to take all the money away from billionaires and give it, you know, we have to redistribute it. Like we actually are going to have to do that. I think there's ways in which right now is genuinely exciting. You're seeing like a number of cities actually taking steps towards like abolishing their police departments, which three months ago, I, I think if you had said like, that's going to be on the docket for this year, I would have been absolutely stunned. And the idea that we can maybe like stop acting like the fact that Bill Gates set up a foundation where he gets to launder his money makes him like a good citizen of the world instead of like a fucking drain on the people who should have all of his money taken away from him and put in a cave for a while to think about what he's done. I'm sorry. I almost just like reinvented prison, but like... <laughs> <laughs> retcon that's yeah to not have concert nights that's sponsored by the bill and melinda gates foundation like it's not just him obviously i don't mean to like single him out but yeah to get rid of this idea that like when incredibly incredibly wealthy people set up foundations that only give money to their pet projects and only in a way that also like benefits their own tax position that we're like great this is absolutely like solving mm -hmm. the problem triple underscore under like all of that and i was also thinking as you were talking to me, one of the biggest problems with the existing charity model is not only the requisite performance of trauma that becomes like the indication of sufficient need of being deserving of charity, but also the requisite performance of gratitude afterwards strikes me as like really problematic in terms of what different groups of people expect from each other. <laughs> and just like, if it was going to work, wouldn't it have worked? Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. supposedly, the point of charity should be that we don't have to exist anymore. And yet, the charity is still operating 100 years later. It's like, wow, you really fucked up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, though, because on the one hand, that's definitely true, right? That there's this kind of, I always think of these homes that they would donate in the 19th century, right? Where the whole idea is like, this social problem shouldn't exist. And yet, 
you built a structure that says like, this is always going to be with us, which is kind of a really fascinating thing, right? Like for impoverished families or that kind of thing, where it's like the very fact that you've built an entire building around this need says that you've given up on kind of making society better. On the other hand, though, of course, there is this kind of meliorist rhetoric around this stuff, right? That like you have to constantly prove that people are getting better and that things are getting better. And in that way, too, it might have a kind of a Christian background and that it's really allergic to causes where it's like this problem isn't going away and not because people aren't trying or whatever it's because it's fun to focus on the problems that you can make go away but part of what a government's there for is to deal with problems where there is no amelioration where there's only making sure that people are okay it creates a hierarchy of trauma in that way too in that like if you have a trauma that ten thousand bucks can fix awesome if you have one that's like going to require therapy for the rest of your life well, that's not maybe where we see our money going, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's why we got to take it away from the cops. Yes, it is. I, I think so. Yes, it is. You heard it here first. You did not. <laughs> you heard it you here did, first, folks. You most certainly did not hear it <laughs> yeah, first here. Yeah. Ron Howard narrator voice, you did not hear it here first. <laughs> Danny, I was thinking about Dear Prudence. I've been a Dear Prudence reader for a really, really, like an embarrassingly long time, back to the Emily Yaffe era. How long have you been doing Dear Prudence now? Coming up on four years, actually. That feels like a long time. Do you think it's fair to say that you're querying the advice column? No. No? Why no. not? Why not? I, I feel like anyone who says queering the anything is doing so with like a big wink and tongue in cheek at that point. Okay, well, I'm smiling. So that's well, whenever fair. that essay came out about how drones were queering war or something, I think we were just <laughs> all like, we have to stop. We have to stop. The queering jumped the shark. I mean... I, again, I'm not like an academic, I'm not a theorist. So maybe there's real interesting ways in which it's still getting used there. Probably my wife, Grace would know because she's an actual academic, but like when it just comes to like civilians, like you and me out here on Twitter, Uh I think we got to stop using queer as a verb after the drone thing. And I'm, I'm Googling it right now to try to remember. Yeah. Wow. The drone jumped the shark. Yeah. 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 Drone disorientations. (laughs) Drones are not queer bodies is the first response that came up. (laughs) That is just, my goodness. That is not where I saw that question going. And like, I hear you on queering jumping the shark, but I guess to gesture more specifically towards what I mean, you often seem to answer letters from people looking to navigate social situations in the modern era, sometimes in a way that's politically correct, sometimes in a way that's actually driven by compassion, sometimes in a way that they're trying to find space for their own identities themselves and how to feel about them. And I guess I was just wondering how you think of your own ethical mission within that, you know, like the ethical mission I would imagine of any advice columnist is to try to remain true to some sort of like moral compass. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed a distinct uptick in your column with queer and trans content. And I assume some of that is filtered through your lens, but I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do definitely get lots of questions along those lines. And obviously there's a long history of gay, both out and otherwise advice columnists. And, you know, Dan Savage started his in what, 94. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a long line Mm -hmm. of that, especially Mm -hmm. after I came out, I got more letters from trans people or from people with trans people in their lives. As I answer more of them, I get more of them. So that's very, very much a part of the column. Mm -hmm. When it comes to any of the letters, as always, I try to look for a way to balance what the letter writer's objectives are with my own objectives. And it's always tricky to kind of figure out how hard I want to push somebody in a different direction, especially if they've made it really clear, like, here's my goal. 
I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, because I had two questions that I was answering on the podcast earlier this week that were both about relationships between somebody who was like 23, 24, and then somebody who was in their mid to late thirties. In one of the cases, that person was like a former employer. It was like a former boss. And the letter writer was very like, I'm an adult. I'm happy in this relationship. Just here's my concerns. And on the one hand, you know, I wanted very much to take her at her word. She is 24. 24 is not a teenager. And on the other hand, it was also like the way that she was describing, like, first he was my boss and my mentor. Then my job ended. Then he recommended me for another job. Then my lease ran out and he offered me a place to stay and he didn't charge me any money. And then just like totally randomly later, our relationship turned sexual. And it was just the kind of thing where it was like, on the one hand, I don't want to take away from you the right to narrate your own story. Yeah. On the other hand, I think this guy offered you a lot of professional help and then offered you a place to stay because he was interested in you. And that puts you at risk, not necessarily because he's an evil monster, but because like you're now living with someone who makes money and you don't. And if tomorrow you decide to stop having sex with him and he gets really mad and he throws you out, like, do you know what I mean? Like I, I was trying to figure out, like, I don't want to tell you that you have to think of him as a predator, but I also want you to be more skeptical of him than you are. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure how to balance both of those things in a way that doesn't infantilize a 24 year old, but that also doesn't like dismiss the very real, like, okay, well, I'm looking at the order of events here. And I don't think that this guy only started thinking about sleeping with you the day you two started sleeping together. Right. And I think some of the professional and material assistance he offered you were based in something and I work. Right. That strikes me as so hard about being an advice columnist, right? That you, I feel like most letters, at least the ones that get published in Dear Prudence are, you know, it's sort of a step-by-step -step. first this, then this, then this, then this, then this. And then you as the columnist are faced with this kind of end picture. This is how it came about. But of course, like, you can't always sort of be like, well, every step along this way is deeply upsetting, weird, and probably shouldn't have happened, right? And yet people are coming to you looking to deconstruct these things. How do you balance that? Do you always take your cue from the writer and sort of say, hey, seems like you only want opinions on this? Or do you find that you have to, or that they really are asking you a different question, that they're asking you to untangle the steps it took to get to that point? Yeah, it really depends. You know, if it's for something like the live chat, where I only have a couple of minutes per question, I'll do my best to just go through what I think that they want. If it's a little bit more complicated or I want to encourage them to rethink something, mm. usually then I'll save it for the column or the podcast so I get a chance to. And sometimes I'll think like, I get that these are your objectives. Maybe you can try thinking about it from another way. It's up to you. And then occasionally there's a letter where I just think your objectives are wrong and bad and you need to stop right now. Those aren't super common, but they do come in. And then there's other times where, again, I'm trying to walk the balance of, I don't want to tell this woman that I think she has to think of herself as a victim or that she has to think of this arrangement as one where she's been harmed if that's not how she feels. Mm -hmm. And again, because I really do want to take seriously the fact that she is an adult and she wants to be able to tell her own story and live her own life. And yet I also really want to encourage her to think about what are the ways in which the help he has offered you has put you in a position where you're dependent on his goodwill professionally and sexually and in terms of where you can sleep at night. So like if you were to look at this as not simply an act of generosity, but also an act of creating dependence, mm -hmm. does that change any of the way that you feel about this supposedly spontaneous 
sexual relationship. Right. And, you know, maybe she'll think about that and some things will look different to her. Maybe she'll think about that and she'll think, nope, I have tons of other resources. I have tons of other options. That wasn't a factor here, but always good to trust but verify. I just don't know, you know? Yeah, I don't know. That one's kind of still sitting with me. The letter and the response you were just describing crystallized for me one of the things that I think is really a strength of yours as an advice columnist, which is A, laying out more clearly than letter writers can often see for themselves the power structure that they are describing anecdotally and what the significance of that power structure might mean. And also, I feel like I could bucket the types of questions you get into. I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this too, but like there's a whole bucket of wedding questions, right? Wedding and bachelorette party related questions. There's a whole bucket. Well, Slate has its own bucket for parenting questions, right? So you don't get most of those. And I feel like there's almost a subgenre of its own of questions that you get that are something to the effect of my friend or acquaintance or spouse or partner behaves in a specifically racist or sexist way. How do I tolerate this? Oftentimes this is a woman writing in being like, my boyfriend does something terribly racist or sexist. And I feel like I have this personal deficiency because I simply can't accept it or something. Mm-hmm. First of all, do you recognize the stripe of the question I'm describing? Very much. Like, okay. Yes. So I guess I just, I wanted to hear a little bit how you approach those questions because I admire so fiercely how you refuse to let people off the hook with casual racism and misogyny. And I think that there's a really profound value to adjudicating these kind of casual anecdotes. So I would just love to hear you talk about that a little bit. That's a big kind of letter. I hear a lot from someone, usually, but not always a woman, who has either a male partner or a relative that they're quite close to, Mm -hmm. who's deeply committed to racism in a way Mm -hmm. that the letter writer wants desperately to be able to if they can't fix it or confront it, they want to be able to excuse it as, you know, ignorance or he just doesn't understand or, mm-hmm. you know, I've tried explaining, but clearly the problem is just I'm not explaining other people's human rights in the right way. How do I explain it better? Right. And obviously there's also ways in which it can be anyone with any family member. I think often people are unduly afraid of having difficult conversations with family members, especially family members who have previously... Yeah, wasn't there one about a bridesmaid recently? A racist bridesmaid? That sounds plausible. Nothing's coming to mind right now, (laughs) but it definitely sounds plausible. I was just actually, again, like this, this latest live show I did, we were answering a question from somebody who was like trying to deal with this, especially in the context of a family member who was a police officer. And they were saying at one point, like, My mom was sending updates from his time on, quote unquote, the front lines of the latest protests where they deployed tear gas against us as we were protesting. Made me wonder if that was him. And so like in one breath, this person is talking about like, I'm so committed to police and prison abolition that I am going to protest and getting tear gassed. And then on the other hand was like, how do I get out of this wedding without just saying, I don't think you should be a cop? Like this person obviously has courage, moral clarity, self-awareness commitment to their values. And yet when it comes to saying like to their mom or cousin, I think he should stop being a police officer. I think it's racist and cruel and violent. I think the whole system is corrupt and needs to stop. They're just like, I can't, I'd rather get tear gassed. Like give me, give me anything else to do besides talk to my relatives Mm -hmm. about their racism. 
I mean, that, that's fascinating. And it's, it's interesting to think about, too, that we think of the approach to you, not just as advice seeking, which it also is, but also as a public making, right? It's sort of saying like this, hey, this is what's going on in my family, which I mean, I always wonder, like some of these people must be fairly recognizable. Some of these problems are somewhat recherche. And so you imagine that the people in the letter might well recognize themselves. It always struck me that, wow, it is a thing to go that route rather than saying, hey, so here's what's up between us. Let's talk about it. There does seem to be a real much greater ease with discussing something in public than actually within the family. I do. By the way, I do tend to think that people write in with like enough details already changed that they wouldn't be recognized. Right. But that's a total okay. assumption. I have no reason to think that people do that. That's just, yeah. I would do that if I ever wrote into an advice columnist is like, just change it enough that no one's going to read and be like, oh, that's Danny. Mm-hmm. So you don't think that there's anyone who uninvites someone from their wedding in that way? Oh, no, 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 no. Right? Be like, oh, I know they read Slate. So uh, so I don't have to have that awkward conversation because I, mean, like, I wrote it. I mean, like they would change the timeline. You right, know, they would right. say it happened five years ago instead of three or something. Right. Sure. But yeah, I mean, and I certainly understand it. I get it. Confronting a family can sometimes be the hardest thing to do, especially if you know on some level I'm not going to be met with anything like open-mindedness or understanding. And as soon as I do it, I will be in total awareness of all the ways in which I worried that their love or affection was contingent or conditional. I know that, but I don't want to know that I know it. And especially when it comes to families and whiteness, there's just also that sense of like, I don't want to think about how afraid I am because I'm ashamed of being so afraid to have like a bare bones conversation with my aunt or my sister about racism that I know that I should. And people can get very avoidant when they don't want to think of their fear and their shame. And so they'll come up with a lot of reasons to try to explain why it's not that bad. The person who wrote in that letter, they wanted to do anything other than just say to a family member, I think you should stop being a cop and you should spend the rest of your life trying to make amends for the fact that you were one. And they're, in the same letter, they were like, we're committed to police abolition. And it was just like, then start with this one. Mm-hmm. This is the cop you know the best. <laughs> you might not win this one, but you should say it. You should say it at least one time. I was just thinking about the tension of approaching someone in your own network with that moral quandary versus going to a stranger with it. In a way, just taking that question to a stranger in the first place was an avoidant behavior. (laughs) I don't mean to harp on this person too much, but I was just thinking about the impulse to write to a stranger with a concern like this and how so often the responses come back with some version of like, I think you know what you have to do because you kind of just told me in the way you asked the question. (laughs) Do you feel like an agent for that process? I don't even know if that question makes sense, but like, do you see what I'm kind of describing? Yeah, um, I do. And again, I think especially like in the last six months of having to go through a version of this with my own family and having a real sense of, you know, I would not infrequently in the past counsel someone like, I think you already know what you have to do. I think you're already aware that this relationship is actually totally dependent upon your staying quiet and being compliant. Mm -hmm. And I, Mm -hmm. but you have to do it. And I think you're probably going to lose this relationship. And then that exact same thing happened to me. Literally, I I am not in any kind of contact with any relative, anyone in the world that I'm related to, all because I could not countenance my father's plan to have a secret agreement with a pedophile who wanted to keep working with children in secret. Mm -hmm. Everyone I'm related to, people I've known my whole life, nobody, like everybody was like, nope, we're going to go with John on this one. And that was 
I mean, nightmarish doesn't even begin to describe it, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll use it. It was just like this perfect encapsulation of just like every fear I had ever had about not being good enough. It happened and it was gutting, you know, I moved across the country incredibly abruptly. Like I took, I think like almost two months off of Dear Prudence. I was just devastated. It was the rupture that will define my life, I think. So I I think there's also very much a sense of, I I think I know what it feels like on some level to be dimly aware of something that you know is going to be the thing that ends something someday. Like before I knew what I knew, I did not have an inkling that that was going to be the thing, but there was absolutely a sense in the back of my mind of like, I know I can't push in these areas. Mm -hmm. I know that I can't push here because if I do, I'll know the thing I wish I didn't know already. Yeah, Very familiar with that feeling. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So that the idea that structures of concealment where you don't quite know, you can tell that there's a compact there and that you're disturbing it by just being honest and asking tough questions or wanting to be transparent. Yeah. And it's just really hard to admit to yourself that you know something. It's really, really hard. And it's really hard to move from I know what would cause me to lose this relationship to I'm going to do it anyways. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult and it's very painful. And there's a reason, especially when it comes to queer and trans people, but in all sorts of ways, why families will spend years trying to make sure that various members know, like, here are the things you are not allowed to question. And here's the way in which love will be taken away from you. And so it works. It works a lot of the time. It works for years. I know you're still living this, Danny, and I don't want to ask you to have processed things that like no human being could possibly have processed, but you're describing living beyond your biggest fear. Yeah. I would take it as inevitable that when you move past acknowledging and confronting and living through that fear, one of the things that you find on the other side is immense pain. What are some of the other things that you found on the other side of that fear? I think in a lot of ways, it's still really too soon to tell. I think this is a question I'll be more qualified to answer in eight and then again in 20 years. But yeah, also like just, oh, you really can do it. Like you Mm -hmm. really can experience Mm -hmm. that feeling. And it's not the only feeling you'll experience again for the rest of your life. And certainly the thing that I felt more than anything, once I found out I started putting plans into action that would make sure that the various groups of people and institutions that needed to know about this volunteer work would be notified within a 24, 48-hour period. And even within that rapid time, mm-hmm. like I, I remember I was just talking to Grace during it and I was like, this feels like either the kind of thing where we're going to do the right thing mm-hmm. right away or the wrong thing forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Do you think that the rapidity of it was partly to sort of leave yourself no moment to blink or something like that? Yeah. We we had spent that afternoon, like once I'd gotten the information in the first place, I'd had a follow-up conversation with several family members that ended with a final conversation with my father. And at the end of that day, like at that point, I'd collectively been speaking to people about it for about four hours. Wow. Only four hours. Wow. But it was also just like, okay, I know everything that I need to know, mm-hmm. the degree to which they have convinced themselves that secrecy and lies and collusion are the only option here is morally horrifying to me. I feel physical repulsion and disgust thinking about it. This is like a poisonous wound that needs to be lanced and the poison needs to be sucked out. And any delay, it will get easier to say, no, maybe this is a good treatment for pedophilia. Maybe this does help weirdly somehow. Like just 
it was terrifying. It was, it was horrifying. But even within those 24 hours, like before we'd officially like made that contact, I was just like, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. So there's also just that sense of like, I can't imagine what it was like to live with that for years, knowing like this person's working with kids. This person's told me they're a pedophile. This person has told me that they view this work as treatment for their sexual urges, despite not running that thought past a doctor or a therapist. And just like, I heard my father on the phone saying like, just insane monstrous things that he absolutely believed that he absolutely had convinced himself were open-minded, non-judgmental, Christ-like, and that made me just want to vomit, you know, it was just like, so anyways, all of which is to say, I just felt as painful and awful and terrifying as it all was. The alternative was like, I don't know how they lived with themselves for so long, keeping that a secret. Even, even that one night that I like had to sleep on, we're sending the email tomorrow. We're, we're making the contact tomorrow. It's the weekend. None of the volunteer work is going on right now. Even that I felt like I was like, I, I'm keeping a secret. I'm complicit. Like this 24 hours, like was awful and it was so much better once it was out wow the metaphor about the lancing of the boil it makes you think about just time and reframing for yourself is obviously how people learn to live with all kinds of horrors in their own families and their own workplaces and their own uh, groups of friends right that if you give yourself enough time the human brain can find a workaround for just about anything. And often enough, you as a columnist, of course, are faced with the after effects of that. It's like if someone had lanced that boil early on, that letter never would have had to be written. But we sort of let everything sort of get encrusted in this way. So would you've always acted this decisively, do you think? Or is this something that you had to be prepared for? Is this something that you practiced for? And what had prepared you for it? In some ways, like nothing had prepared me for it. Right. Well, I mean, certainly for the fallout, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, no, I mean, I think... I don't know. I, I I really, I cannot imagine a time in my life when I would have been presented with that information and I would have thought this makes sense. Mm -hmm. This is, this is good. This is safe. This is helpful to the person in question as well as the children that they're around. I, I'm sure that there would have been times when I would yeah. have had fewer resources or felt more suicidal or right. I felt less equipped to know what to do aside from just like an outside and start screaming. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do genuinely think like kind of kept me safe. And part of the reason that I was the only member of my family who was kept out of this secret for such a long time, the rest of them had all known was my queerness and the ways in which that put me at a distance from the family at an early age and the ways in which that made them uncomfortable and resentful and disgusted and angry and terrified. And that had often been very painful for me, but it had also like, I had practice at that point of not being in the inner circle. And so it was sort of like, I think they knew on some level that I was going to be the weak link in keeping the secret. And that's why none of them shared it with me. Because on some level, even if they weren't willing to admit it to themselves, I think they knew Yeah, Danny will not join us in keeping the secret. Danny is not committed and invested in the same idea of the like perfect white Christian heterosexual family that we are. And therefore Danny can't be trusted to bar the gates like we know we can. I don't want to presume too much into the details of this story, Danny. You're being really generous and really brave and sharing with us about it. But I did want to ask, did you find out because someone told you or did you find out by accident? I've written about this a little bit, but yes, the person in question came to me yeah. and told me. Wow. So I, yeah, I heard it directly. I know it for a fact. Which removes another layer of ambiguity, right? At that point, you know, it's not hearsay, you know, it's not a rumor, you know, like, it, yeah. yeah, that's a hard hard stop right there. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I mean, 
I have a really hard time forming coherent thoughts about this story, so I can only imagine how you feel. But I am recalling that when you first told me this story a couple months ago, you called me on a weekend because you were in the midst of moving to New York and couldn't do an event at Stanford that we had planned. Yeah. Which is totally fine. But the image that's recalling in my head is I was on the playground with my son when you called and told me this story. And we've been talking about nausea a lot. <laughs> and uh, just like hearing this story, I think I was with both of my kids and watching my two young children like climb on a playground was just like, yeah, there are there are these hard moral intersections in life where you can ignore the voice inside you that is telling you everything you need to know. But the price of ignoring it is being haunted by the rest of your life by your own inaction. Yeah. So I hope that in addition to the pain on the other side of everything that you're describing, there is also relief and centeredness in not ignoring that voice. Yeah. And it was just one of those things where it was like, it was an unbelievably straightforward situation. It was like, this person needs yeah. to see mental health professionals who work with pedophiles and this person needs to not work with kids. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that mm -hmm. was, no, it was not like, throw him into the ocean. Yeah. Or jail. Yeah. You know, and again, like I had said, my father has a PhD in clinical psychology. Like he's not uneducated. And I was just like, if you had a patient who had come to you with this, would you really say to them like, yeah, don't tell anyone else or talk to anyone else about this. Just keep working with kids and that'll help. And he just said like, that's really out of line. And I was just like, hmm. I, I like, I just, I felt insane. I felt like I was losing my mind. And it was just one of those moments that was just like, this is a person who I at least thought like we might disagree on certain religious matters, but like is really committed to a vision of community and public safety and loving people, even when that means holding them accountable and saying, you can't have this thing that you want. And it turned out when it came to the most kind of like critical moment of doing the right thing, it was just absolutely not shut it down draw the circle, you know, draw, draw the doors, draw the gates. Everyone outside is the enemy. Everyone inside needs to be kept safe, regardless of the cost. Half a year ago, we had an event at Clayman with Yvette Dion, and she sort of pointed out the way in which this kind of circling of the wagon effect in families, of course, is sort of the way we deal with horror and rationality sort of in our immediate circle in general, right? That like essentially sexual harassment in the workplace, but also like a president who is clearly where certain facts are very clearly visible, but we're still supposed to act as though we don't see them, right? Like that this comes out of a very, very profound place and at the heart, not of necessarily of every family, but a family as an institution, this kind of insider outsider thing that habituates itself to accept certain things coming from insiders that if they were to see it, like Laura was saying yeah. on the playground, you'd be like, yeah. Well, wait a minute. Like, what the hell? But we somehow ignore ourselves to it. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of like trying to convince yourself, like, I must not have seen what I saw. I must not have heard what I heard. Right. I must not know what I know. And it's just like, if this happened to just like someone at a coffee shop, would I be trying to make these excuses? Would I be trying to like recreate reality? Would I be doing this much to protect themselves? And it's just like, oh, no, I would not. I can put this one down. That's one of my most reliable tricks that I've learned in my many years of therapy is like, would I be okay with this happening to my best friend? You know, like if I'm trying to justify something for myself. And I think a lot of what you're describing too 
circles back around to the project of advice giving too, because, you know, sometimes you're getting the letters that are about bridesmaid issues. I don't want to be misogynistic in the way that I dismiss those, (laughs) but sometimes you're getting letters that are describing grooming or domestic abuse or sexual assault or other things where there are clear indicators that are visible to an informed grown-up on the other side of that letter that clearly aren't visible to the letter writer. And I guess that's part of the sort of social justice function of making some of those problems anecdotal and legible and visible that I've found so compelling for such a long time about the way you handled your prudence. Yeah, there's so much of that. And there's also like, you know, people who will write in and who will say like, I realized like I turned a blind eye 20 years ago or like mm-hmm. I realized somebody was in pain and I didn't help or like mm-hmm. I was in pain and I lashed out and I hurt somebody else and now I don't know how to make it right. And so, so much of it is just like, you know, what does it mean not to say, here's the good people who should be protected at all costs. And here's the bad people who should be gotten rid of so much as like, how do you stop something going on that's wrong? How do you respect the autonomy of others? How do you meaningfully grapple with guilt and shame in ways that don't become just about trying to make yourself feel better right away, but that are also about trying to do right things so that you can redevelop a sense of real self-esteem and also not feel like the only option you have is to hate yourself. Mm -hmm. So all of these problems exist at such different scales and it makes such a difference if somebody is willing to or able to acknowledge like here was the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. whether it was something that they did or something that somebody else did. And so, so much of the problem comes from either insisting it wasn't that bad and understand or it just has so much to do with whether or not someone's really committed to a new kind of way of life and what that can look like and it is great that sometimes there are questions that are just like I want to cook dinner for my neighbors more often do you think it would be rude to offer which I got Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago and I was just like this is so nice I'm so glad you're writing in Danny, have you been doing book promotion? Has your book promotion been a COVID casualty? Like, how have you been handling releasing a book during this time? Yeah, my book came out in February. So I, I got a pretty solid month of book tour before everything stopped. So I was relatively lucky in that sense. And I'm not really doing book promotion now, but it is out, which is nice. And yeah, I feel really grateful that I got to do some travel before everything changed. And it's also just like, it feels like it happened 10 years ago, you know? So many years. Yeah. February. Yeah. I was remembering, I think the last time I went out to dinner was on Valentine's day with my husband and we strolled into green apple books afterwards. Cause we went out to dinner in the Richmond, which is like not a crazy expensive or like, you know, insane or wild night, but feels so, so long ago now. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Another world. Yeah. Yeah. Another yeah. World. You know, Another it's just time. weird. Like seven months ago, my life was so different yeah. and, uh, mm-hmm. now it's, now it's different. I can't even quite imagine what it must be like to have your world up ended in that way. I didn't realize it was in such a short span of time, to be honest. Was COVID kind of more of an afterthought at that point? You're like, Hey, whatever. It's just a, just a pandemic. It, no, no, it, it definitely felt like, wow. Okay. This year is big, mm. but I do think I had a degree of resilience, internal emotional resilience, where it kind of felt like I've been through the thing that I was kind of the most afraid of in terms of my emotional life. Right. So it's not like, oh, who cares if people die exactly so much as like... that's not what I meant. No, 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 of course. I wanted to make sure I wasn't representing in in that way. But this sort of sense of like, I've already established that I can do without the thing I didn't think I could do without. So let's figure out ways to help. I wanted to feel like I was making New York my home. I wanted to feel invested and like I was being helpful, Mm -hmm. like I was being useful to my neighbors. And as weird as the timing was to have moved here right before all this happens, there's... 
nowhere that I would rather be. Like I feel really grateful to be in this city and with so many people who are doing such great work and to have so many opportunities to like be out in the streets, to be out doing jail support, to be out delivering groceries and like escorting elders to medical appointments and just being like, I I know that this is always really cheesy and just like, you get to choose your family, but like genuinely the sense of like my primary emotional and relational identification is not to people who I am related to. It is to people whose needs I like, share or the people whose resources I share or the people who I can be in solidarity with. None of them can kind of like dangle like parental love over my head and be like, you wouldn't want to lose this, would you? It's just like, what do I care if you're mad at me? Either I did something wrong and I'll apologize or you're being unreasonable and I'll take a break. You're not my mom. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, you talked about the way this kind of fear that sort of structures the family for, I think, a lot of queer people as something that you know is sort of the worst thing that can happen to you. I do have to say that one of the things as people sort of roll with the punches on COVID, and I'm not trying to minimize any of that, of the real devastation it's bringing, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a fear that like, it's not like your worst fear realized. It's a fear you didn't realize you had, and suddenly it's there. And you're like, okay, well, cool. I'm wearing a mask now and I'm setting up a mutual aid group, right? I mean, like, it's it's like an asteroid. I I did not see this coming. Uh, Whereas familial fear is the one that's like, basically, it's baked into the structures. You don't want to picture it, but you know what it would feel like. Mm -hmm. And it's there as this Damocles sword sort of hovering over you. I think that's really interesting that in some way the break that you made made it possible to sort of face this really kind of fearful thing or this really kind of scary thing in a way that feels like, well, okay, we're doing this now. Yeah. Man, you guys, I feel like I just got like a free therapy session. (laughs) Come back anytime. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crosley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is R. Lanier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product services and entities. Blue Apron, Hims, Casper Mattresses, the Trump administration, and that stupid wine club started by two MIT grads. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and shoot us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. Appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. 